0: Welcome to Not In A Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back,
1: relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson.
0: Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not In A Huff. Thanks so much for joining me. As always, really appreciate it. This week, an amazing guest, learning about something extremely interesting. I wanted to find you know, a topic that's been in the news lately that uh, most people don't know a ton about. I don't know if we could think of something that uh, is more vast and, and uh, unknown than space. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. I have Athena Brinsberger joining me. And she came to, I guess, this topic in an interesting way. She started out very interested in space and astrophysics, went on after uh, college, she took a little break from college to pursue a modeling career, went all over the world for that, was a a top talent in the modeling world for for 10 plus years, and uh, now she's revisiting that world. She has a few um, shows both on TV, on the internet, and then also a podcast that explores the world of of space. Uh, I saw her on a on another podcast, heard her uh, explain this topic, and I thought we we've got to speak with her because she's made it uh, just so digestible. I and she's she kind of taught me that word digestible because it's an interesting topic. It's one that a lot of people don't know a lot about. Some of you could be listening now and like, oh gosh, we're going to talk about space. That's uh, this sounds like it's gonna be really scientific. Of course, it's a scientific uh, topic, but I, I really think you're gonna enjoy how Athena breaks it down and explains things about space that uh, is super interesting and in a way that we all can can understand. So I really, really enjoy speaking with Athena. I know you're gonna enjoy this one. Uh, if you're at all interested in learning about new things, we're actually gonna talk about you know that quest for for knowledge and curiosity kind of wanes as we get a little older uh... so hopefully people who listen to this uh... they have that curiosity i know if you listen to every episode you certainly uh... learn about a lot of different topics and and i think you're gonna really really enjoy this one too uh... we're gonna talk about some interesting facts about space her life in modeling and astrophysics that's a an interesting combination we're gonna talk about how she got that uh... you know that distinction and then we're going to talk about what's been in the news lately with space when it comes to Elon Musk and SpaceX and Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin and uh, what it, if it's a good idea to have these private companies going into space. She's going to give uh, her thoughts on that, and I think you'll, uh, you'll really enjoy her insight there. But just a pleasure to speak with her. Without further ado, here is my interview with Athena Brinsberger. I'm here today with Athena Brinsberger. Athena, how are you?
1: I'm doing well. How about you, Jackson?
0: Good, good. So before we we start, I always like to just let people kind of open the floor and let them tell us, I guess, a little bit about themselves.
1: Yeah. Um, so hello, my name is Athena. Um, I also go by kind of this alternate ego known as Astro Athens, which is my platform I created to uh, try to bridge the gap between science and art. Um, I am an artist in several ways including dance but I also really love astrophysics and astronomy. so um, I thought let me create a platform where I can combine the two and then also may, maybe maybe help encourage others along the way mainly focused on on science communication but within uh, the space industry and astrophysics.
0: <laughs> I like it. so we're obviously going to talk about space and a lot of other things that, that you've got going on but I guess tell us a little bit about you know yourself. Growing up and tie that in when your your passion for uh, I guess all things astrophysics and uh, space started.
1: Yeah, well, it's, I was born in Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York. So what up to all my Brooklynites? Um, uh, so lots of light pollution. was it really exposed to a um, you know a, too much of a brilliant night sky at the time. Um, but I oh, like I mentioned, always loved the arts. So I grew up uh, as a dancer. Started ballet at age three. And when I was about 11, 12 years old, I picked up this book uh, taken by a bunch of images taken by the Hubble Space Telescope, Mm -hmm. was like completely mind blown, figured they were probably some kind of painting or artist creation or something like that. And then uh, I I learned that they're actually real images taken of things out in space called galaxies and nebulae. And there's tons of other stars and planets like us. And there might potentially be life. So at 11 years old, I kind of had this like, just existential crisis and was like oh my gosh what what is astronomy and that's what really started the spark for me was the, was this book and so by about high school's when i was finally able to take my first astronomy class uh luckily went to a high school that had a planetarium so i was able to learn how to track asteroids at 16 and how to work a fiber optic planetarium um and that is yeah really just sort of continued uh, this, this passion, um, of, of astrophysics and wanting to pursue that. And at the same time was still pursuing, um, being a dance major and, and training at some of the the best schools you could train at in New York. So, um, definitely was trying to sort of merge the two as much as I could as a teenager. And I think that all came to fruition once I became an adult.
0: For sure. Well, two things I pulled from that that's, that's interesting, one is your your high school out a planetarium. That's pretty cool. I don't think that yeah. that's very common. And then also, maybe not as cool to have that existential crisis at a at a young age. What did you say 13? I feel like that's that's not as fun, but I guess it's puts you in a good spot, hasn't it?
1: It did. Yeah. It it just gave me the perspective of like, you know, we're probably not alone. And like, you know, there's something so much bigger than all of us, than the school, than, you know, the bullies. And, you know, I was 11, 12 years old. So who wasn't bullied at that age? And, you know, and so so it's like having that perspective, you know, at such a, an awkward time of your teens, I think really helped. um, It just helped me kind of grow into the human I am. I want to, we're going to
0: talk mostly about space. That's, that's kind of what most of my questions are about, but I want to know, I guess, kind of that life outside of it. You've already talked about, you were a dance major. Talk a little bit about, you know, your, your career outside of, of, uh, you know, that world literally on this world and not outside of it. Talk a little bit about whether it's dance or modeling or some of the other things that, that I guess interest you.
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, once I got to college, um, and I became a physics major, I during the time my very first second summer, excuse me, my second summer at university, I got offered an internship at the Hayden Planetarium to do research under Dr. Charles Liu, incredible, incredible astrophysicist, you've got to get him on the show sometime. He, uh, you know, this was the first time I did research, I had a NASA space grant, But that same exact summer, um, I was working a part-time job at Aeropostale, which is a retail store, and I got scouted for America's Next Top Model. And I thought, hmm, I don't know if I really would want to do that. It seems like the modeling industry and fashion is quite superficial. But I spoke to him about it, and he really was encouraging to sort of, you know, like see where it might lead me. Um, I definitely was interested because of my dance and acting passion, and I thought maybe modeling could actually kind of, you know you know, or open new opportunities, basically. Uh, So I gave it a shot, ended up um, actually (laughs) making it to where I was like part of the top 12 to get selected for the show. And then I ended up not doing it uh, for several reasons, just mainly because of reality shows. Didn't necessarily agree with the contract. And that's just me. Um, So I decided to try to pursue it completely on my own. So like working with various photographers, building up a portfolio and meeting with agencies, and I got scouted um, at a fashion show uh, that I ended up booking uh, directly on my own through it was like a Facebook ad. <laughs> I, I like went in person with like hundreds and hundreds of other models, and it was a New York Fashion Week show, and that's where I got scouted for my very first agency, which then led me to this incredible career of actually modeling like around the world. Which is like it's so crazy. Still like even when I say it right now because it was just such a wonderful opportunity. So that being said. Um, I sort of treated my life decision at the time being torn between pursuing, you know, finishing my degree going for my PhD or pursuing my modeling career, which was just starting to work out and I get picked up. And uh, I got this really great advice from, from Dr. Charles Liu. And, and he was like, Well, he's like, the universe is always going to be here. School is always going to be here. He's like, maybe pursue the thing that is a little bit more uh, like confined to the time that you're in. So such as like doing something that's more like, you know, physical or whatever it is like, if you're doing athletics and you're a certain age or uh, for this, it was, it was modeling. And, you know, when I reach my thirties might not be able to sign to any agency. So with that being said, I decided to sort of run a trial and error and treat my life using the scientific method and said, let me give it a semester, take a semester off, see where it leads me, and if it does really well, I'll I'll float that boat, and if it doesn't, I'll return to school. It ended up doing really well. I did 10 years of a career um, going to seven or eight different countries, and um, it was so incredible, and so now I find myself currently returning back to school to now <laughs> finish, finish my degree, go back into doing research.
0: I like it. You know, I've talked to a lot of different people that have, have done modeling and they, you know, they talk about how, you know, they just decided to just make the, take the leap or, you know, take a chance. I've never had a single person be like, I decided to try the scientific method and 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 do it that way. That you're the first person that's ever brought up the scientific method when they're talking about modeling.
1: <laughs> I, I think, like if, if thank you. I, I, I like really, whenever I talk to people, if they're torn about something, I'm like, try to treat it as if it's, you know, you're, you're, you're coming up with an idea, hypotheses and see if it works. And if it doesn't, you can always try something else. Like life is supposed to be this, you know, very like mosaic thing where we can just try all these different things and put together all the pieces that make up our life in its entirety. So.
0: So now you said you've kind of stepped away from the modeling world, And you're kind of focusing back on the science world. Is that right? Are you still kind of dabbling in both or how's that look?
1: Yeah, well, I was able to uh, still continue modeling while kind of building my brand online. So Astro Athens, where it's just a lot of like fun DIY science experiments, learning about how like space works through more conceptual demos, um, just to try to make it like, I don't know, fun. And and that was sort of like my outlet at the time, because I like couldn't, I definitely could not pursue school and my modeling at the same time, it was way too hectic, um, just because of, you don't have a consistent schedule in the fashion industry. And to try to do that and like deal with learning astrophysics is like very, very tricky. Um, and so, uh, or doing exams. Um, so yes, yeah, so I, I came to a point now where, um, I've just gone so heavy into, Um, the science communication aspect and wanting to basically learn more. I've reached an age or a point now where I feel very fulfilled in the outlet of fashion acting. And I got to do all that dance too, that I'm like, I really, really want to get back now into my academics. And um, probably a big influence was COVID. I have to say just from like that really shut down the fashion industry. Like, uh, you know, a lot of my clients went out of business and, That definitely caused a halter. And so I think that allowed for sort of the space of, okay, what's next? And it just felt right. It felt like this is the time. So I started doing online schooling, online classes, just to sort of get myself started. But I'm hoping soon, fingers crossed, to apply and and get into UT of Austin.
0: Yeah, well, fingers crossed for sure. And I think it just kind of shows i guess how passionate you you have been about the the topic because you know, you spent all this time doing something else it would have been easy to kind of be like you know what i i like what i'm doing now just for, forget that cuz it's not going to be an easy topic that's for sure but it just kind of shows your your passion behind it that you're still after 10 years coming back to it and it's still something you you want to do
1: you know, you you just said something that made me think about uh, just like an emotional state probably years ago about astronomy, um, probably before I started doing AstroAthens, I started making that because I felt like it was something that I had let go of. I thought it was something I was never going to return to. I was like, all right, I'm focused on modeling. And um, I probably just gave up my dreams of becoming a professional astrophysicist. And um, I really did feel like as if that was... Yeah, that was a decision I had made, and that that was of something that would happen in another life, or it was a past life dream, basically. Um, and then I don't know. I guess it was just sort of think like thankfully with you know with social media and and you know being able to make a website that allows for I think more of like creative uh, ideas to really come to life. And, and then if it works, it, it does. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. And I guess because that did, Astro Athens did start to really build into something that really gave me the motivation to say, I think I could do this. I think I could return to school. Let's talk about uh, kind of shift into your
0: Astro Athens world, so to speak. And, and let's kind of go back to your research that you did when you were in school. Uh, you hmm. you talked about, I think you were studying stellar nurseries, which sounds Like really cute, but also really cool too. Tell us a little bit about what the world that is.
1: Yeah. A stellar nursery is a region in space where stars are being born. So newborn stars, baby stars. Um, And I was doing research in the great nebula of, of Orion so, you could see it with the unaided eye. So, you don't need a telescope or binoculars. Um, Orion, the Orion constellation is really easy to point out because of those three stars of Orion's belt. And just below it is the uh, great nebula of Orion. To the left is the Horsehead Nebula. And that is a perfect region in space because it's a giant molecular cloud, so it's basically all of the elements that are necessary for to seed new star life. Because um, stars, you know, are, are made of some of the most abundant elements in the universe, hydrogen, helium, and then when nuclear fusion happens in their core, that, that starts to turn into deuterium and heavier elements all the way up to iron as uh, usually where it stops. That being said, this area is such a fascinating point to sort of look at the birth of things like our very own solar system. And what I love so much about space is you can look out into it and you can see birth, life, and death, like, and then all happen all over again. There's a kind of recycling process. Um, a lot of nebulae form from the death of a star. And so it's fascinating Is a star literally dies, but expels all of its elements out. And then that is what's needed to create brand new life. And it's, you know, not too different than us humans and, you know, and like trees and, Um, I think that that's such a a beautiful thing. So I was really fascinated by that when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do research in my first year. And when these newborn stars form, they're spinning really, really fast that they start to attract all this matter around it that exists within this nebula. And it eventually starts to form a disc. And this is a disc made up of dust and gas. And then in certain regions where maybe it's a little bit more dense or heavy, kind of like a dust bunny in your room, it starts to accumulate and form, uh, possibly a planetesimal, And eventually maybe if we're lucky, eventually a planet. And so I found this to be really fascinating. Um, my specific research was looking at the mass loss rate. So basically what can happen in these proclins is they're not alone. The star that's there, there are all these other stars in the neighborhood. Think about all the other people in the neighborhood. And we have effects on each other, you know, energetically. If, if one of us is yelling, the other one's going to be walking by and be like, whoa, whoa, whoa bro, man, like calm down. Um, and so these stars similarly give off a lot of energy. And so if there's a really massive star right up next to a newborn star, that's trying to create this disc, this accretion disc, it can cause tons of stellar wind and radiation. and can cause all of that matter and material to start to get blown apart. And then we have no planets that that can form. No, I, I like the way that you you break it down. That's that's the reason I
0: wanted you to come on because it's such a obviously a a very technical topic that you're able to kind of you make it you put it kind of in terms that people can understand, which I like that
1: digestible,
0: digestible. That's that's good. the word I use. I <laughs> like
1: that. I like that.
0: I took one just so you know. I took one astronomy class in college. I remember very little. I'm going to tell you one thing now and then one thing here in a little bit, but it's just because it made it you know, something that I guess more digestible for me. And that's the reason I remember it. One that I thought was super cool was that, you know, obviously we talk about light years and things being light years away, but he made me, I guess, realize what that means where stars that we're seeing and how many light years away, that means that light that left there literally could have been emitted thousands of years ago way before people were on the earth and it's finally reaching here and now we can see it which i was like whoa that is so cool
1: yeah i, I love that oh that's so fascinating that's why you hear a lot where people say oh we're looking back in time a lot of times mm-hmm. when we look in space uh and that's yeah simply because the light takes a t- takes time to travel to us like the sun light that we get is 8 minutes uh, it's eight minute delay, I guess, in a way, another way I like to sort of break down the speed of light, um, for people is, uh, if you look for a doorknob in your room, that's usually estimated to be about one meter high. And the speed of light is about 300 million meters per second. So imagine traveling 300 million of those doorknob lengths in one second. That's how fast light is moving. Um, and so it's moving that fast, hold on to that thought. And then imagine it now it takes you know, a hundred thousand years for it to get from one end of the Milky Way to the other, which is about the estimated size of, of our galaxy, about a hundred thousand light years.
0: Yeah, that just shows just how how vast everything is. So let's let's say people are listening to this because you know people listen from for all different reasons, and there's you know all kinds of different topics. But somebody's listening to this, and their head's about ready to explode. They're like, why do I necessarily why is this something that I should care about? Why why is space important? Why is all this matter? Tell us a little bit about why you know, the study of space is something that's important for us all.
1: I would say it's important for everyone because we, regardless of our societies that we build, our technology that we build, we are these mushy biological beings that exist on a rock that's literally floating through space. And there's probably tons of other rocks like that with maybe other like mushy, squishy beings like us that might exist as well. And that can freak a lot of people out. And I completely understand that. Um, But it also, I think, could bring a little bit of perception into maybe some of the things that we tend to find are difficult to, to deal with. I think that on a personal level, the study of space can actually really shift one's perception of their own problems or their own ways of interacting with each other, maybe our way of preserving the earth or our way of making you know, decisions globally. And I think that if we have a little bit more understanding about that, we'll be able to sort of understand more about ourselves too at the end of the day, because we are all made, as Neil deGrasse Tyson has said this, of star stuff. We are made of the same exact elements as everything else in the universe. And so if we are, why is it that, you know, we shouldn't be studying any of that? Like, to me, it just is like a no brainer. It's like, if we want to know more about ourselves, we should be studying more about things that are made up of us as well. A lot of the curiosity that comes from space exploration, just like the simple human innate desire to explore to another land or in another body by doing that, we sometimes end up answering some of our own problems before even realizing it. Uh, a perfect example is a Hubble Space Telescope. When that was launched, I share this probably all the time, uh, but when it was launched, you know, it was this billion dollar telescope. There was all this critique coming back because the pictures weren't sharp, they were out of focus and everyone's like, oh, we just spent all this money and it's you know terrible. And uh, what ended up happening was, well, NASA got together all of its best software engineers, developed something to be able to, to help correct the images, the lenses of what was coming back, uh, the, the, to, to make the make the images a lot sharper, and this technology was then used for mammograms and to detect breast cancer much earlier on, hence saving so many people's lives.
0: No, I think that's that's really cool for sure. Th- you
1: you've kind of touched on it just a, a
0: little bit. You know, we've talked about maybe there's life somewhere else. You wanted to study to see whether you could you know find it. Obviously, we've talked about just how vast space is. Do you think that there's there's others out there? There's life somewhere else.
1: I definitely think there is. Yeah, I, I think that we probably haven't come in contact with it yet, and I think that uh, it's there's there's it's so large that I'm pretty sure Carl Sagan put this in a much better way than I'm about to. But it'd be quite silly to think that we'd be the only ones, you know, that that exist out there, um, and not just like living beings, but conscious beings. Um, so I think that we're probably going to end up finding life within our own solar system other than earth before finding life elsewhere. Um, and that's just because the moons around Saturn and Jupiter are just so fascinating. A lot of them have water ice on them and, and liquid water. Uh, one of them has hydrothermal vents. Enceladus is, is one of the moons. Um, and this is a, a moon of Saturn. And when the Cassini mission went to Saturn, it flew through these ice plumes being shot out of the South pole of Enceladus. And right within this region, um, it was discovered that there are things called hydrothermal vents, which is proposed of where life began on earth. And um, there's extremophiles that live there. So like tiny microorganisms that can survive under really harsh conditions, such as really cold temperatures or really hot temperatures or lack of water um, or lack of air. And I think that it's very probable that there might be some form of life there. Um, and I think that would be really, really exciting to find. I don't think it would be any form of like conscious intelligent life, like like humans, uh, or, or maybe even like animals here on earth, only because I think we probably would have come in contact with them by now or detected some form of communication with the amount of space probes we sent out uh, as, as humanity. So I don't think that's probably the case, but uh, I, certainly, I certainly think that, yeah, they're, they're, it makes more sense for there to be life within the universe than for there not to be life other than Earth.
0: Well, that's, that's, that's a whole nother can of worms probably. But, <laughs> but, but yeah, this next question, I feel like you're either going to love or you're going to hate it because it's pretty open-ended. I pretty much given you what I remember from my astronomy class, so I don't even know the best questions to ask you. So what I kind of want to do is kind of open it up to you. Tell us a few cool things that you can tell us about space as a, as a whole. You're either going to love that and you're going to be like, yeah, here's some stuff. Are you are going to be like, what? You, you opening this up like this? That's, that's uh, oh, annoying I and scary. <laughs>
1: It's I, I I very much encourage uh, pressure sometimes when it comes to live <laughs> things. Even though this isn't live, it's a pre-recorded, but still. Oh yeah. Um. So yeah. so with that being said, I did an episode earlier today on my podcast Space Talk, and we were talking about dwarf planets and where dwarf planets get their names. And I was kind of diving in deep with some of this research, uh, and I ended up finding that some interesting things about Pluto and why Pluto uh, was changed from being a main planet to a dwarf planet at first everyone's like, oh, it's because it's like super, super small. And that's why. And it's like, okay, yes, it is small. But the main reason is because it hasn't cleared out its neighborhood. Uh, What that means is it's located in the Kuiper belt, technically, which is this region beyond Neptune uh, where there are a ton of icy, rocky materials. Think the asteroid belt also similar. There's a dwarf planet in the asteroid belt known as Ceres, And, um, since Pluto, which does orbit the sun, it does, you know, it it is a celestial body that orbits the sun that has its own natural satellites, AKA moons but since it has it cleared out of that neighborhood of the Kuiper belt it's considered to be a dwarf planet not a main planet so this was uh you know a definition that was that was decided upon by the international astronomical union which is a huge organization with a ton of different astronomers that come together to basically to make these decisions on things The other thing is I almost wish that we kind of just considered the dwarf planets to also be main planets of our solar system. And we just said, okay, they're dwarf planets, but let's still teach kids that because I think that's like really exciting and encouraging to kiddos uh, that are learning about this, that there are other planets within our solar system that aren't just the eight. And another thing too, I think that could be misleading is uh, the three closest planets to the sun, Mercury, Venus, and the earth are terrestrial planets, meaning they're rocky, uh, meaning they have like a molten core and uh, they have land. Whereas um, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune are gas giants. And so they don't actually have any solid surface. This is why the great red spot, that great red spot on on Jupiter uh, is a cyclone that's been happening for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's because there's no land for the storm to disperse in. And so um, because of this, I thought, oh, you know, and I'm like a kiddo learning about about astronomy and the solar system, the further you get from the sun, the colder it is. And so all the planets must be gaseous, but that's not true because you have Pluto.
0: For sure. And I want to talk about, I guess, some of the outreach you've already done. Um, You've, you've done some, I I believe some space themed talk shows or a theme shows before. Talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. So I've done, uh, let's see. So I've done a few different shows. Um, when I first moved to Los Angeles, so I'm now currently in Austin, Texas, but I went from New York to, to Los Angeles and um, I got to work on the tomorrow show, which was an incredible, they are an incredible YouTube channel that uh, does live broadcasts of rocket launches, bring on interviews. That was like really kind of getting me used to being on camera and talk about space. And then I got to work with Seeker, uh, which is an incredible, also a really great YouTube channel. Um, worked with them for a ton of their different series, talking about like the Hubble Space Telescope, talking about dark matter, um, tons of of different different scripted content. I've done quite a few things on television. Um, I've worked on uh, the Science Channel. So there's been a few shows I worked on on the Science Channel. Um, there is uh, What on Earth, which were a bunch of satellite images taken from space, um, looking down on Earth, and you have to like kind of analyze it, figure out what exactly it is. They always give you the space topics. Um, NASA's Unexplained Files, and then Strange Evidence, which is really really exciting uh, to work on all of those. And I got my very first hosting science show that's airing on Curiosity Stream very soon. And then I'm really excited because I got my very first science show that I'm the actual host of. All those the other ones that was commentators.
0: I think that's that's super cool. And that has to be exciting. How does that feel so to be excited. able to to host something?
1: Oh, it's so, so exciting. Um, I was so nervous when I flew to Los Angeles to film, um, but it was just such an incredible experience. And it just felt so natural and so right to kind of just be in that environment. And I was really just interviewing so many incredible people and just sort of sharing their stories. And I think that that just made it so much more special.
0: This is kind of a weird, awkward question. You can answer it or not, but how did, I mean, how obviously you're hosting something you've, you've been a commentator. How does the science community kind of look at it? The only, the only world that I see that are, are just so weird about it is really like chefs. They're always like, they're just a cook. They're not a real trained chef, whatever. I mean, do you, do you find that the science world is just excited that people are talking about it or are they like, well, she doesn't actually have her, her degree yet. Blah, 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 blah. What, what, what is, how do you find that?
1: Well, the second thing you just said is what was my own inner voice for a very long time. Um, I was really like just thinking like, how do I go about all my science communication without even having my my legitimate degree? Um, I feel like I'm, you know, a phony. Like I just felt, yeah, just really, really bummed out about myself. So it's a very sensitive subject for a while. And I'm very happy I could finally talk about this right now. Uh, but uh, the science community is is not like that because I'm not an expert. I'm not coming from an expert's point of view. I'm not a master of this stuff. And I think if you can admit that and you understand that, then it's more like I'm here to to encourage others to share stuff I find. To, I will spend hours and hours researching these things, finding tons of different sources to gather enough information of what is you know close to what would be you know the truth or whatever the discovery is or all the information. And I'm simply parlaying that on my channel. And um, although I do have, you know, it's like several years of research and I was basically like a few credits away from graduating, which I would have just had my, my, my undergrad in physics. And Dr. Charles Liu is always like, you're a scientist, Athena, you are like, you did the research, your, your name is published in papers. You know, I, I, it's, it's there. Like, I know that I have a legitimate say in a lot of this stuff, um, but at the same time, yeah, like I do still face that own inner voice, which usually comes from me. I haven't really received that from, from others online. Uh, I would receive, of course, sort of this kind of confused, maybe sort of response of like she's a model, but she's talking about space. And I mean, I get it. Like people, uh, we, we might not really, um, understand the kind of cross sections of careers because maybe not, not a lot of us have done that. Um, so I also understand that, you know, I, I, completely get that, but it doesn't mean that what I'm sharing is any less legitimate than if someone else shared it. Cause it's the same exact information. Um, it's just that it's in my voice. And so I think that as long as that is the case, and as long as people get that, everything, everything's Gucci, everything's fine, you know, and, and people love it. And like, you know, and I bring, I bring on, you know, all the scientists who are actively doing the research on, onto, you know, my channels and, and share it because, I think that it makes it less intimidating for those who aren't in the science industry. It makes it in the scientific fields. Like it can be very intimidating when you're like, what's all this, you know, scientific jargon that's being spoken. I don't understand it. So I think to sort of have these mediators, these communicators to sort of, uh, you know, do that is I think very valuable and it's really important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad that the, that, internal struggle is maybe hopefully a little bit behind you. Cause I mean, you, I, I think that you' you're teaching people so much it doesn't really matter what what letters maybe you have behind your your name i you you've taught me this nice nice word of digestible i think when you are still learning it makes things a lot more digestible I, I have people in my office every day who you know they're in a math class and they're like you know the, I can't understand the teacher they talk way above my head and I say it so often they just understand the topic way too well and they can't they can't make it digestible for you at this point so so i think i i really you you shouldn't you really shouldn't discount anything that you're doing it doesn't really matter what uh, what titles you you might have it's all about if, if truly you're wanting to you know let people know about the topic and let people know about your passion then passion doesn't come with a, a title so i think that's 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 really powerful for sure
1: yeah, thank you for that. That that I completely agree. Uh, I think as long as I'm not, you know, like trying to operate on anyone, I don't need that that doctorate. <laughs> but you know,
0: <laughs> the thing that really struck me too that you you wanted to talk about, and I really want to hear about, is I guess that loss of curiosity. Why that happens? Because that happens so so often with with everybody. The most curious person in the world is a you know a 3 year old but then we get kind of in our rut maybe i'm going to answer the question but we get in our rut and we stop caring about everything else and we stop being curious why do you think that's the case
1: yeah i think a lot of it does have to do with upbringing um and then sort of the like the the stage that we get at when we're when we're exiting high school and going into college and you have to sort of make a decision conform to one specific decision or desire that you want to do um, because you have, you know, either like financial aid on the line or your parents' money on the line or all these things that are like tangible. And it puts a lot of people, I think, under pressure to sort of make a very one small box decision. And so I think that when that's made, suddenly everything gets so much more serious for the person, uh, it gets very, very serious. You start to get pressure. You have to like, you know, go to you have to get to go to school, make this degree. And then you have to like graduate because you have to earn that money back. And when everything starts to get serious, you're not so curious about other things. And I think that, um, you now have to learn for the sake of getting a job and making it in society, not so much for the sake of just gaining, you know, uh, knowledge, real estate, learning is such a beautiful thing that we are so lucky to be able to do as intelligent beings. And, um, unfortunately, I think a lot of people don't really like to learn because, you know, it's associated with anxiety and stress and, you know, pressure from exams and schooling and being told that you're failing or you're not doing well. And like, I've been there, trust me, I totally get that. Um, But I think that if we stop asking why and and, and having this love for curiosity in other areas of life, then we've kind of stopped being human in a way. Um, So I, I think that that probably is tied a lot to sort of these big pressure decisions that maybe are made when growing up. I think it's also probably tied a lot to uh, when, you know, depending again on, on how you're raised, if your parents, when you ask them a question of why they might say, just because I said so. And that's so, it's so sad. That's so unfortunate. Like let them explore, let them learn. And, um, and that's, that's something that we really, really have to do. And like, I've found that I've still have so much of a kid inside of me. And I love just like looking at life through wonderment. Um, and, and, and I think that that's fine. And even when there are like, really like bad things, you know, that are happening. It's like, we have to feel that we have to feel the, you know, like there is optimism, but there is also pessimism. There is also negativity. And I think it almost helps us cope better with the negative things that might happen in our world. And and exactly what you
0: said is exactly what I think. I think that people just, I've always felt that pressure of learning about, you know, studying for a test or, or learning this certain thing because they, you know, they have to write a paper on it where, Just so much pressure behind it that they associate that as negative. I mean, I work with adult learners, and you know, a lot of people are terrified to go back to school because they have associated that that world with such a negative aspect of things. No, I think that that's that's a huge thing. Just keeping kids passionate about learning, you know, kind of being harder on harder on the adults than maybe you you're going to be. But you mentioned earlier that when kids ask, you know, why. Explain things. Don't just say "Hey, because I said so." Maybe you're done learning. If you you want to, you know, stop, but let's make sure the next generation doesn't turn out maybe the way that you're turning out. And just explain things. It's as easy as that. Keep people's passion for learning going, and and you're gonna you're gonna help a lot. I think.
1: Yeah. Yeah. For sure.
0: For sure. I want to kind of talk about another difficult topic when it when it comes to the world of science. And, you know, I, I noticed that the people you talked about with your mentors, a lot of them, I think if I remember right with the names, a lot of them are, are males. I think that there's a, in STEM, there's a huge need for more females in that field. What do you think can be done to, to get more, uh, you know, young girls interested in the field?
1: Yeah. Well, podcasts like this, you know, I think like chatting with you, the fact that, that I'm a woman and I think that that's really exciting. I think seeing um, that, that representation, we hear about this a lot, right. Representation, how much it matters, how much it means. But like, at first I was kind of thinking like, yeah, you know, I do hear that a lot, but what exactly does that mean? And then I, I had to like really dive in deep with kind of like my childhood and and think about like, you know, what it meant to sort of see people that looked like me. And, um, and a lot of my idols, right? Like, so I have a mug here that says, "What would Elle Woods do?" And Elle Woods was the character from Legally Blonde, and oh, yeah. I love her. I really do. And you know, and, and maybe that's also tied. I think a lot of a lot of people do, and it's not just because you know they're blonde, but like, you know, but but for me, that was like a character I really looked up to. Not only because of the way that she she really like kind of handles really tough situations, but also because you know she's blonde, and I thought that I kind of looked like her. And I realized, I was like, huh, yeah, I I think that if children are able to sort of see figures doing tons of different things in the world with their lives, making impacts in tons of different industries that look like them, that gives them now the opportunity to think, oh, my appearance doesn't actually matter or it shouldn't matter, um, my gender, should it matter? And I think that for so long, since that was the case, uh, I think that this is why it's so important and exciting now that this is becoming such a, a thing that we see everywhere. I mean, all of social media, I mean, like I'm loving how many women I'm seeing, like in the science industry, like just awesome like just kicking butt working on like rockets, working on the SLS like working on I mean tons of different things SLS is a rocket but you know we're working on tons of different missions um, and you know there's wrestling alligators. I mean it's just insane like and it's so exciting and and I realize I still do this today where like I'm kind of looking for representations. I, I just think that if we really like embraced what kind of makes humanity so colorful and so different, we would be learning so much more uh, as a species. And so I think that that's why it's very important to have uh, just, yeah, more gals in, in different industries.
0: Um, I think that's that's powerful <laughs> for sure. I mean, it just takes people like you to, to want to, to maybe do something that a lot of people, you know, a lot of other girls haven't done. And then, you know, the next generation, they see people that look like them Doing doing it, rocking it out—that just makes them more uh, more, you know, prone to to do something like that. So I think that's really cool. Yeah. All right. All right. So the next question I want to ask you about is the internet and social media's role in the whole world of uh, science and space exploration. Do you think it's mostly beneficial? Obviously, social media and and the internet can create cause a lot of problems in, in things too, and a lot of misinformation on the, the spectrum of, of information can be uh misguided sometimes. So do you look at it as a as a positive because it gets more people that information or more of a negative because there's a lot of bad information out there.
1: Right. Well um I mean I guess it is sort of both, right? Cause like there is negative information out there. There is uh, a lot of um, misinformation as well, but there, I think the positives do outweigh the negatives. Um, also in a sense of, for, from the very beginning of why I started Athens, uh, it was after doing a congressional blitz, which was uh, with the Planetary Society to go to Capitol Hill, to go to NASA headquarters for a day, train with them, learn a lot about what their NASA bill is all about for the upcoming fiscal year where they, they want their budget to be, what investments they want to be in different areas of uh, of NASA. So whether it's like school or research or planetary science, et cetera. And then we would speak to a house of representatives and the Senate. So it'd be me and like two other people. And we would speak to people that are from like our region. So I spoke to my congresswoman um, of my area in Brooklyn and would talk to them about why this is important to me. And I was not a paid lobbyist. Like this was totally volunteer. And after that, I realized like, huh, like the more people that talk about how important this is to them, the more I think politicians who make a lot of the big decisions at the end of the day are going to care. Uh, Now, this is prior talking about like privatization of space, like SpaceX, Blue Origin, uh, Virgin Galactic. So kind of looking strictly at like government run space agency, NASA. Um, So if you have more people, more taxpayers that are interested in this stuff, you know, more senators, more congressmen and women who want that those votes from their people. And so uh they're more likely to put you know more money into these NASA programs. So that's kind of how I first looked at it. I was like, okay, this is this is fairly valuable. And so if there is more information out there, more interest, this is only gonna benefit all of humanity, you know, as a whole, because the more we explore the cosmos, I think the better we're going to be helping kind of just our evolution in general as a species. But then you get into sort of this privatization of space. And I've always had a very positive view on it because it's hard. I do not run a business. Well, I guess I kind of do Astro I did make incorporated, but it's, you know, kind of just me. Um, and then sometimes a web developer, but, but even just that alone, it's running a business uh, is, is, tough. I can't even begin to, to understand really just how much work goes into it. Um, or even I can't, I can't even really begin to explain that to, to others. But if you want to make a huge impact on society, we'll take Musk, for instance, and create an electric car company that is widely limited, lessening our carbon footprint on the planet, you are already a huge contributor to combating climate change. So that's incredible. Then you go into SpaceX and you're like, okay, now there's a rocket company. And uh, you know, a lot of people might say, okay, this is you know causing a pollution, stuff like that. Okay, then how about we remanufacture it? Make something possible that NASA, that all these other space agencies were, were saying was impossible, which is a reusable rocket. Made that happen. And now having tons of missions to helping millions of people with say things like Starlink, which is now broadcasting internet around the world, which is, you know, awesome. Not really like, you know, helping people, I guess, when it comes to poverty or, um, or, or hunger, but all the technology, as I mentioned, that can come from these types of missions can start to have a direct impact on some of our problems we face here on earth. So I think that that's so important to hold on to also the greater mission of humanity becoming this, interplanetary species or multiplanetary species it's not just about saying let's just go to this planet because we can. part of it is part of it for sure is. otherwise like you know what would have happened if all humans, wherever we formed what well, we all formed we all we all were born in, in this one continent of Africa but if we didn't start to spread out and explore other parts of the globe, we wouldn't know what else is out there and sometimes that curiosity, is not just important to fuel because simply curiosity is wonderful, but also because there are things we learn from it, as I mentioned earlier, that maybe we wouldn't have even known about before. Admitting that there's a lot of things we don't know is I think so valuable. So so doing missions like going to space is so important. And another thing too is, companies like SpaceX, like Blue Origins. So I was going to mention about Bezos. is There was a lot of pushback on social media about billionaires going to space, blowing all their money and, and all this stuff and so much negativity around it. And I just thought, I'm like, okay, so what should we be doing? Just like completely stay here on earth, no missions to space, no missions to anywhere. Let's stay here on earth. And then a lot of people will say, well, then we should fix our problems here on earth first. And it's like, well, we haven't thought of the solutions just yet. Right of of here on earth of how to fix those problems. If we did, they would be fixed. Um, So not that we should be looking elsewhere to find those answers, not at all, but going back to sort of like solving the problems um, here on earth, a lot of times can come from technology that's developed to try to resolve something else. So an example would be like flying an airplane. Think of how many lives were probably saved from people who ended up getting like really sick or really bad disease had to be flown to a hospital. Um, Yeah. Or just simply being able to explore the rest of the earth, being able to learn different cultures, being able to learn different languages, being able to go to different regions, learn more about our planet and everyone's able to fly now. But when we were first, you know, the the airplane was first developed within society, only the very wealthy were able to fly. This is a comparison I want to make with, Uh, rocket launches. And so like with the mission that Jeff Bezos has, has, that uh, Elon Musk has, that uh, Richard Branson has, is to create a space tourism world, and industry for humanity to be able to see our earth from space, to be able to experience being physically off of our planet, I think is going to shift a lot of perspective for people. And if you shift perspective, this is what creates the new invented ideas. It's not just about like, oh, this is wonderful and this is really cool. Cause yes, for sure that might be the case for some people. But those sheer interests of just wonderment and, and curiosity, I think is what fuels a lot of the greatest inventors that have come in our past before, like Nikola Tesla and, and thinking about all of these these incredible um yeah just anyway, all these incredible inventors. And so maybe we've reached a point in humanity where like we aren't so much inventing or we aren't so much creating bigger than we could. We're not thinking as far outside of the box. So maybe we need a global shift like this, like space exploration or space travel. Um, So that being said, going back to your initial question about social media, I think that with social media comes all these different views. And that is really important. And that's really valuable. And I think that that's very, very wonderful because that is the world we live in. The fact that we even get each to be able to argue with each other is a wonderful thing. The fact that we get to you know, uh, disagree with each other is a wonderful thing. This shows that maybe our system is actually working. And I mean, like just our human system or the fact that we get to have different ideas, opinions, uh, people are able to create companies like this.
0: Yeah. I think that's really, I mean, we talked earlier to you know, in the conversation about why it's important to explore and why it's important to study space. And we talked about why it is. You, you had a lot of really cool examples. So I think we can kind of bring that back in and say, whether you agree that, you know, these private companies and these billionaires should go into space and do that. It's not something we were doing much with NASA right now. And whether it's positive or negative discord, guess what we're doing? We're talking about space. It's on the news. It's on all the cable news stations showed the, uh, you know, the launch. So it, it's bringing space back into the conversation, you know, positive news or negative news. Guess what? It's still news and still people are still learning about uh, space and getting that back into their, their minds. So I look at that as a as a positive for sure.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. Um, And then one more thing too, is that there's other companies that are getting inspired to now create rockets differently. Uh, A company I want to highlight is Relativity Space. And they're going to be doing, I think their first test launch pretty soon sometime this year. And they have a completely 3D printed rocket. And so if you have a completely 3D printed rocket that's able to successfully fly, you're now talking about being able to 3D print on Mars, 3D print on the moon um, and making it so much more accessible, easier, cheaper, and less polluting than uh, any other space rocket that came before that or a space industry or company. And that's what comes from competition. And I think that that's a very wonderful thing that we have to keep in mind because the rate that we were going at um, by just strictly following a government-run agency uh, is is slow sometimes, sometimes it's faster. But the fast the, the, the fact of how much rapid growth we've seen, just from the privatization of space is really really exciting and i think that that's where the innovation can really happen because if elon musk didn't make the the landing rocket you know like other companies wouldn't have thought that that was possible either you know everyone told him it wasn't possible and you're you know you're wasting your time you're wasting your money and every time a rocket was exploding they're just like he was a laughing stock and it's like no like you know it just he didn't get bothered by the naysayers. He was, he was in Elwoods. Elon Musk, you were in Elwoods. No, but yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: I like it. I like it. And, you know, kind of in wrapping things up, I do want to, uh, we've already kind of talked about what, what you hope the future holds. And I, I have no doubt that, that if that's something you decide to do, you're, you're going to do it, but tell us a little bit about what's happening now. What you, you know, what you're doing. This is a good time to kind of plug that, uh, that podcast of yours, but as a whole, you know, on earth and and off of it, tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, what, what Athena is doing these days.
1: I love that you said, and off of earth as well, not going to space just yet. Uh, So fingers crossed there'll be an upcoming mission one day. Um, But that's also a big fuel of why I want to actually go ahead and and do my degree as well, because I just think that if I have some really great research, I can, I can make a strong argument to fund a mission to space for me to conduct this research. So, uh, well, I just moved to Austin, Texas. Um, So I am based out here now and hoping to go down to Boca Chica, Texas to check out Starbase very soon. Um, and to see what's going on with Starship. Very, very exciting. Um, now that things are a little bit more open, uh, post-COVID kind of, is I'm really hoping to start doing rocket launch chases again. So that, stay tuned for that. Um, I'd probably be doing some kind of coverage on my social media channels. Um, all of my social media channels are called Astro Athens, like the city in Greece. Um, and and so I'll probably be going maybe live on those. But yes, I do also have a podcast that I just started last December. So it's only been quite a, f- a few months called Space Talk and it's hosted on the Colin app and um, very, very exciting about that. It just launched also on Spotify and Apple podcasts earlier this week. So it's now available there. And yeah, it's basically what it sounds like. It's a place where we just talk about everything that has to do with space, astronomy, space industry, um, I do send out an email transmission or weekly transmission, I call it, which is a, an email newsletter. Uh, usually is uh, different stargazing events you can catch from your own backyard. So I generate my own sky charts um, where you're able to see like what constellations are visible, what you know deep sky objects such as galaxies, globular clusters, uh, and then the phases of the moon, what planets are co- in conjunction, stuff like that. And, uh, and then I have a little segment called space history. And other than that, that's about everything. I've got a show coming out on Curiosity Stream. two shows. Actually, very excited for those. So you, you're just not doing much. You're just kind of hanging
0: back and just sitting <laughs> around, huh? Got a just lot hanging out going on.
1: Get-
0: <laughs> that's with awesome. My cat. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. And I've listened to, to several of the, the Space Talk ep- episodes. If people are listening to this and like, Jackson, just shut up and let her talk. That's where you need to go listen, because that's where... You're going to learn a lot more about a lot of these different topics that you're talking about. You can go into a lot. You went into a lot more detail and I, I, I I enjoy it for sure. So yeah, space space talk is where they're going to find uh, that podcast. Astro Athens is where all of your social media is. You're just letting me struggle through trying to tell you all (laughs) of your connections again, but
1: you got everything right. Yep. Space talk um, and Astro Athens.
0: I like it. Well, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thank you, Jackson.
0: So that was Athena Brinsberger. I normally say I hope you learned something, but I'm sure you did unless you're you don't know, one of uh, Athena's friends and an astrophysicist already I-, I guarantee you've learned quite a bit about space if if uh, I guess you were you were open to that knowledge. you know <laughs> we talked about you know the. I guess kind of the relaxation of being able to learn about things just for knowledge sake and not having a, a test over your head. I, I, I learned so much about um, space. I learned so much about Athena and, and just kind of the, the joy that she is. So really, really enjoyed this episode. Uh, like I told her, you know, I took one uh, astronomy class in, in college Learned a few things from it. Uh, took a, a few things away that I, I told her about. Uh, but uh, I, I learned probably more from her than I, I did in that class. And that's not really to, you know, to say anything bad about the the course. It was just taught in an academic way and and not as digestible. So I I really really appreciated her time. Um, I urge you to go check out her podcast, Space Talk. Urge you to check out all of her social media, which is Astro Athens. That'll all be in the show notes. Of course, if this is your first time listening, welcome. Please do uh, go check us out on Instagram, not in the podcast. Uh, if you're a long time listener or first time listener, you enjoy this one, and you haven't already, go on Apple, go on Spotify, give us those five stars. Want to be even more awesome? Go and write a review. Always appreciate that. Uh, But uh, if if you do nothing else, check us out next week where we'll have another amazing guest. But uh, appreciate you being here. Appreciate Athena being here. Take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think
1: or hey. Maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.